Man, it's good to see you guys. You guys look great. Hey, we are starting a new study. And hopefully you've gotten your, your new book. This is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And um, I think, right, Jeremy, that we've actually never preached from in any of these books in all the time we've been here. So this is new ground. This is exciting. So um, my goal today, you have not read Ezra, Nehemiah. We have not done this as a church, but hopefully you have your book with you to bring this week to be able to start doing it or your bookmark. I apologize for the bookmark and its cuttings. I did it and not Barb. And so it looks a little like a preschooler did it. So, um, but um, we're going to be reading this together as a church. And this is exciting stuff. And my goal today is to get you excited about reading it. Because most, I would say most people tend to ignore Ezra and Nehemiah. And, well, they don't really ignore Esther. They kind of like the story of Esther. But we need, we need to do it because it's important. So, let me ask you a question. Um, when you were young, girl, did you play outside? Did you play games? Did you kick ball, baseball, kick the can, hide go see? Does this ring a bell with anybody? Okay. Um, there is a phrase that all kids know. That... I can remember. And that phrase is a do-over. Have you heard that? Yeah. So you're playing baseball in the street and a car comes down. You know, you've just hit this great shot. You're running for the double, but there's a car in the street. So you stop. Oh, we got to do a do-over. What, do I get on second? No, you got to bat again. What? Or you're playing kickball and you kick the ball and the ball goes uh, and sticks in the tree. Oh, you got to do a do-over because it's just stuck in the tree. You know, Johnny's got to climb the climb up or shake the tree and get the ball down. It's a do-over. Oh. I mean, it's good because you have a chance to kick better or not get out or whatever. Or okay, maybe you're doing kick the can, all right? And people are 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 in base and they're wanting someone to kick the can so they can go back and hide again and not get caught. And then guy's running and he kicks the can. And then someone's mom comes down and says, hey, you got to come in for dinner. What? <sighs> okay, we, well, we come back, it'll be a do-over. Does this resonate with anybody? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wish we had more do-overs. There's been a couple times I've preached and I went, I kind of want a do-over. It was a... As far as I was concerned, it's a lame, lame sermon. Let's hope that that's not today. But so we're going to talk a little bit about do-overs today. Um, where Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther start off is what's known as um, the post-exilic period. If you've done any kind of study, post-exilic meaning after the exile, they come back. And actually, the post-exilic includes what, something we've already read as um, in, a, in addition to reading. We read, we went and did through First and Second Kings, but we also did. We had some um, accompanying First and Second Chronicles, 
we believe because of the compilation and the, the emphasis on Judah in Chronicles that Chronicles was probably written post-exile or post-exilic. And so you have, you have that history of First and Second Chronicles. You have Ezra, you have Nehemiah, you have Esther. Then you have three prophets that are also falling into that post-exilic period. You have Haggai, you have Zechariah, and you have Malachi. All of these books were written and gathered after the traumatic deportation of the nation of Israel by Assyria and the, the nation of Judah by Babylon. Okay? So all of those are crumbed together. Now, there is some evidence that the person who wrote Ezra, and Jewish tradition has that Ezra wrote Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay? And that Ezra and Nehemiah was actually one scroll put together. That's why you have Ezra in Nehemiah. Okay? It, but you have different movements of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then you have Esther who kind of fits in there somewhere. But the writer of First and Second Chronicles and the writer of Ezra, either they knew each other or they're the same person because there's some similarities. And the end of Second Chronicles begins the first of Ezra. Okay? So... Evidence tradition has it that Ezra wrote most all of this. And maybe even Nehemiah wrote maybe because he knew of Esther. But chronologically, it's a mess. Okay? So, when you start diving into Ezra, the first six chapters of Ezra is just a bunch of tables and legal terms and um, proclamations and letters you don't even hear of Ezra till chapter 7 it's like wait what why am I reading this I mean you just this is weird okay and then Ezra starts talking about things that are going on in the in Palestine in the area where there used to be a Jewish state or Jewish states and now they're coming back, but you have a mix of all these different kinds of people. Then you have enemies. And Stay with me here, okay? Because this is historically accurate. Okay? So let's look at a map because I have to do a map. There was a map earlier during communion. What's, what the heck? It's gone. All right. Oh, there it is. Very good. So... This here is Palestine. This is where Judah was and Israel was. When they had the deportation, all the northern tribes went up here. Okay? They're all up in here. And then the southern tribe got deported and they're down in Babylon. Okay? Something amazing happened while you had Jews here and Jews here. Then the Medes and the Persians in one night overtook Babylon and took over this whole area. And you had a king named Cyrus. And Cyrus says, tells all the Jews, you can go home. And you should build the temple again. Okay, historically speaking, 
this just doesn't happen. Usually a conquered people stays a conquered people and they intermarry with the people that conquered them and they just become another dispersed group that get melded in to a new group. So you have the Jewish people who are told, wait, they can go home. Back to their homeland, their promised land, and rebuild their own religious and political life again. Historically speaking, that is um, a miracle. Okay? You don't, you don't hear in the, this, the re-upping of um, any other of the countries that surrounded Israel during the time. You, you, you just never hear about them anymore. The, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Hittites, Jebusites. I mean, they all just disappear, but... The Jews remain because they got to go home. Okay, God, this era, this time is a divinely inspired do-over. And it's an exciting time. Okay, so when we, when we get into Ezra, what is not explained to you is that you have a series of Persian kings. Okay, so you have a bunch of different names that is hard to follow. Okay, so I, I suggest to you sometime, look up, Google it, do whatever. Look at the, the reigns of the different kings of Persia. We have them and specific dates. Okay? Why is that important? Well, we have the dates because we have archaeological evidence. And, and why is that important? Why, why is it important for us to have the Bible and have the first six chapters of Ezra? And we go... Okay, so we have these list of the gold and silver artifacts that Nebuchadnezzar took that were returned. Uh, okay. That's really inspiring, God. It's helping me to be a better Christian. I don't know. He's just like, what? However. And then you, you have these official documents that no one could have had unless they were within the inner courts of the kings of Persia. And Ezra has them. And he, he puts them in his, his text. And we have these readings. And the Bible's been around for a long time. And these were in the canon of the Old Testament. Long before we discovered the Persian documents that were uncovered. In fact, in the middle 1800s, there was, a, there was a famous scholar in Germany, and he was like, you know what? We think Ezra was probably just fictitious. It was just convenient. And the Jews are trying to get some legitimacy why they're still in, the, in Palestine, and this was just fiction. Well, lo and behold, in the late 1800s, they started digging up these big libraries in Persia and in the Middle East. And they found these Persian documents. And when they translated them, lo and behold, they were word for word from Persian to Aramaic. Because part of Ezra is in the Aramaic. Word for word, exactly as Ezra had written them. I mean, that's, that's, that's astounding. Because people, oh, well, you know, the Bible's not really not true. And then they discover archaeological evidence. And then they go, oh, well... Okay. 
So I guess Ezra wasn't fictitious. Now, he may not have been mentioned. But in that same right, they, 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 miss, they mention Sanballat, who was the governor of Samaria. Wait, Ezra talks about Sanballat. What? You mean the Bible could be true? I mean, this is exciting stuff. So, as you read the first six verses, the first, first six chapters of Ezra, and you, you, you struggle, remember that this is a miracle, okay? It's just for a conquered people to be given the do-over, the chance to return is nothing short of divine intervention. Okay? So then we get to, to Nehemiah. And, and Nehemiah becomes a governor, okay, under another Persian king. Just these Persian kings. So we have Cyrus who gives the edict, okay, of the, the, the Jews can return and rebuild the temple. Then you have um, another Persian king called Cambius, okay? But the Bible doesn't mention him. Well, because the Bible didn't mention him, does that mean he didn't exist? No, because the reverse is not true as well. Okay? So, but he, he doesn't have much to do with the Jews. The Jews have already, some have left already. And so he just kind of rules. And then you have Darius, where we get in Ezra, we have Darius. And they write to him and say, hey, they're re, these Jews are rebuilding the temple. And, you know, they've been causing quite a stir for quite a few years. And they have rebellion. And Darius goes, wait, well, I don't know. Well, I should check check the records. See if this is actually should be happening. Oh, I guess Cyrus said he could return. So, yeah, sure, they can, they can build. And then you have Xerxes. Okay, and Xerxes is pretty important because we, we know that the Xerxes from, because we have ancient documents from Greece because there was a big battle between Greece and Macedonia and all that area. The Persians moved in. There are lots of battles. Have you heard of the Battle of Marathon, the Battle of Salamis? All this is Xerxes, okay? In some of your Bibles, you, in the NIV, you'll get Xerxes, but in, in, the, in the New King James, I think, and the RSV, you have Asherus, same guy, okay? So just because you, you have um, Persian readings, you have translations, transliterations of Greek, and so, same guy, okay? Well, Asherus happens to be married to a woman by the name of Hadassah. She becomes queen. And Hadassah is also named Esther. So, wait, it's also starting to fit into place, right? And then, then you have Artaxerxes, okay? And then you have Elizabeth, these persons... They just repeat names. And then there's Darius the second. And then there's Xerxes the second. And then there's Artaxerxes the second. And there's Darius the third. It, can these guys come up with a different name? What's going on? This is confusing. Well, yeah, history is confusing. That's just the way it is. And so, chronologically speaking, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, you have the return of the first six verse, the first six chapters of Ezra, which doesn't include Ezra. Stay with me. This is where the first return goes. And it's headed up by a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. 
Okay? And Zerubbabel is a part of the Davidic line. He's one of the sons of the sons of Jehoiachin, who is considered the last rightful king of Israel before he was taken away. And so he is of the lineage, and Zerubbabel becomes the lineage of Jesus, but he's the last one to actually be given a, a governorship, and, and he brings a bunch of people, and they start rebuilding the temple. Okay, And during that time, there's some interaction between whether they can rebuild the temple or not, and they stop, and they start, and they stop, and they stop, and then they just keep building it. Okay, And then, during that time, after the temple is being built, then Esther happens. Okay, So you have first six chapters of Ezra, and then you have Esther, who just kind of, she's never in Israel, she's in Susa, she's in Sushan, both same place, just different names, transliterations. Um, And then you have Ezra coming over. Okay, that's the space of about 85 years from the first wave of people, of Israelis coming in, and then the second wave coming in. Then you have Ezra coming in, and then chapter 7, you have Ezra, and he, the temple's being built, and the temple's being restored, and he starts reading the law. And people are like, wait, what? And so he is encouraging right religion, right truth, right way of worshiping God. He, Ezra is a priest. He's a scribe, and he's a notable in the courts of the kings of the Persians. All three. And so he's able to go and start, with some authority, telling them how to do worship correctly. And then a little bit later, a third wave of Israel people come, and then you have Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is made governor, and he has also been in the courts of the kings. He's the cupbearer. He's the one you trust because you have assassinations. He's the one who gets to sip the wine first. Okay, I'm not dying. I guess it's good. You can have it. And so you've got to trust this guy. And so he is in good with the Persian king. And so he whines a little bit. He's a little bit disturbed about the walls are broken down in in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. And the king said, well, just go. I'll send you with some, with some stuff and we'll get it done. And so he make him the governor in that area and he begins to rebuild the wall, which is important. Because if you don't have a wall and you're a city, are you really a city? Because people can just walk in, steal, rape, pillage, destroy, unless you have some sort of wall boundary to protect people from anybody and anybody who wants to do it. So there's this returns and they keeps getting better and it keeps getting better. Okay, why is this important? Listen, if we ended Israel's history in the Old Testament with them being deported, the question would always be when we start the New Testament, wait, how did temple get there? Wait, why are there these Pharisees? Wait, how come we hate Sumerians? All of these questions 
are answered during this post-exilic period where we have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All of these things are explained so that when we get to the New Testament, we understand why some of these things are going on. So this is important for us to jump into and to do this. All right? Listen, anytime you're reading the word, this is what I do. I'm not saying you have to do what I do, but you should. All right? Before I read for that day, I pray something like this. Lord God, your word is, is accurate and it's able to teach me. Holy Spirit, speak to me through your words today. Something like that. Pretty simple. And then I read it. And can I tell you, not almost a day goes by where something I've read will show up in some sort of conversation we've gone through during the day. I'm like, ah! And I'm richer and I'm fuller because of the reading of the God's word. So, oh, guys, tomorrow we're going to start reading Ezra. And we're going, to, we're going to be like, okay. Just know that it's an official letter. And the reason why it was an official letter and why it's boring is because we need to know that it's been authorized by God for there to return. He, and it's been proven archaeologically that this actually happened. Because there's extra biblical evidence that these things happened. All right. So, with that being said, let me let me explain to you maybe an overarching theme for the all for all three of these books that we're going to be reading. Okay. There is a Yahweh supernatural movement. And then there's an expectation of his people to act. In, in all three books, there is an, an amazing, supernatural miracle. And then God acts and he expects his people to act. Okay? So, in Ezra, the miracle is the Jews' return. Okay? But, they are expected to not just, okay, we're home. No. He wants them to rebuild the temple. That guy encourages them. Zachariah, you guys, you guys got your houses right. What about your, what about the temple? Let's get it finished. And the expectation, you need to do what's in the law. You need to be in obedience of God. And one of the one of the stickling points that the expectations of the Israelites during this time is, don't intermarry. Because guess what? How did we get to Babylon in the first place? Well, we started intermarrying and we started going, oh, well, your God and my God, we, you know, all, all, all ways lead to heaven. Oh, my gosh. And then they begin taking on idolatry and then you have worship of the queen of heaven and, oh, here's Molech. Hey, let's sacrifice a few kids. What? And so it all started with the intermarrying of other people. And so Ezra comes back and he realized, Oh, we've started intermarrying with the people that live here. What? Did you not learn the first time? And so he's instituted, hey, those of you that intermarried with people, one of two things could happen. Either they become Jewish and they follow the one true God of Yahweh or they get dismissed. Okay? That seems harsh. But divorce is is better than death. 
in Ezra's estimation. Okay? And so, that's a big thing. So, that we go to Nehemiah. There's a, a miracle in that not only does Nehemiah get to bring more people into Israel, into the Palestine area, to resettle, is that he gets to build the wall. And he builds the wall in 55 days. Listen, I can't even put concrete around my house in 55 days. It takes about six months. It's a wall around a whole city in 55 days. Are you serious? It's nothing short of divine. But there's an expectation of the people now with having a walls around the city and the gates put in. Don't work on the Sabbath. Nehemiah comes back and finds out they keep the gates open during the Sabbath so people can come in and out and bring their wares and, and, and work. And Nehemiah goes, what? Did we not just have 70 years of rest of the land because nobody did the Sabbath back then? Huh. And so there's an expectation of the people that they need to start acting like the people of God and be different and have a Sabbath. One of the crazy things about Nehemiah is the really expectation of time. If you, if you get to Nehemiah 12, he institutes some reforms. We have Ezra reading. There's a bunch crying, wailing, weeping because they realize they're not doing what the law told them to do. And Nehemiah says, no, 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 don't weep. You should be rejoicing because it's a good thing. God's brought us back. And then you have the 13th and all of a sudden we find out that one of the enemies of Nehemiah is now residing in the temple. He's got a house. He's got a he's got an apartment in the in the temple, Tobiah. Wait, the whole part of first part of Nehemiah, Tobiah and Shanbalat and some Arab is fighting trying to get everybody to not build the wall and then all of a sudden he's living in the temple. Well, it's because Nehemiah went back to Susa. And then he came back again and he said what, you guys didn't get it right again? What's going on? And he's, he's all up in arms. There's a big space of time between Nehemiah 12 and Nehemiah 13. But that isn't explained. I mean, it's a little bit, but he's like, oh, I went away and I came back. Well, yeah, like 17 years. I mean, travel's a little bit more difficult back then. I mean, we can go to Texas and back in a day, day and a half. That's about the distance. Takes about four months to travel now. You go back, you have to make the king, hey, hey, king, yeah, I did this, I did this, but hey, it was all in the up and up, we're all doing good. We're not, this is not usurping you, we're not doing, he's getting all this stuff done. Okay, and then in Esther, the miracle in Esther, well, it's twofold, but the first miracle is that a Jewish woman becomes queen. What, you don't think that's, a miracle? Wait, a deportee, a, a slave, if you will? Wait, she becomes queen just because she doesn't mention that she's Jewish? That's a miracle. And then Mordecai calls her out. Well, there's some expectations of you now. You're queen and you, you're set up pretty good, great. But guess what? If you don't reveal who yourself, who you are, and what's going to happen, we're all going to perish. We're all going to die. So she has to stand up and say, you know what? 
that edict that you put down that all Jews can be killed? I'm a Jew. And so then the whole group of people that were set to kill all the Jews have to fight for it. And Haman, who is the second in command, gets killed by his own gallows? What? And then Esther's cousin, Mordecai, becomes second in command? It's like a whole Joseph thing again. This is amazing stuff. And we have evidence that this all happened. So all three of these books return Israel to be a nation again. In Ezra, it's religiously. They're returned back to doing and being the people of God. For Nehemiah, it's geography. They're returning back and they're given the place New people are getting moved into Jerusalem. Other people are giving their land outside of Jerusalem. So geographically, you could point and say, that's Israel again. And then for uh, Esther and Mordecai, it becomes a political. Now, they, they have a right to defend themselves, and that's why we have Purim. Because they were able to stand up and say, hey, you can't just kill us. We can fight back. And they become quite successful at that. So, religiously, geography, and politically, these three books solidify bringing Israel back to area. And so when we get to the Old Testament time, you get to the New Testament, even though you've had the Persians going west, and you've had the Greeks going east, and you've had all this stuff, all this uproar, Israel is still there, and they're there legitimately. And there's a temple, and then there's a bunch of people who are saying, you need to do it this way, you need to do it this way. They're called the Pharisees. When the Pharisees are clearly brought up during this time. Because what are the Pharisees? They want to obey the law. They start out in the right idea. The Pharisees in the New Testament, they, they want to do what's right. They want to follow the law. They want to do what's God. So they don't want to get deported again. So they're excited. They're very, very wanting to do what's right. And one of the big things is Sabbath. There got to be Sabbath. Well, who started this? Well, Nehemiah. So they have some start they get a little they get a little sideways they get a little judgmental they get a little over strict and then Jesus has to tell them you need to calm down and and that's one of the reasons is that all of this stuff that we see in Ezra Nehemiah and Esther come and have a very valid point when we get to the New Testament and explains why does Jesus have Trouble in Samaria. And, oh, why do we go to Samaria? We don't go to Samaria. Those guys are a bunch of wackadoos. What? what? Well, it's because during this time when the Assyrians brought another group of people in and resettled them in the northern part of Palestine, they had kind of had a mixed relationship. They go, well, we should probably follow the God of this area, which is called Yahweh, but you know, we're going to bring our gods too. And it's mixed, and it's like, there is a interspersing. There's kind of a diluted faith. And so when Ezra comes in, when Nehemiah comes in, they're talking about, no, it's going to be a pure faith. It's going to be Yahweh only. And so there builds some resistance to the northern part. And that is why we have problems with Samaria. That's why with the woman on the well, when she talks with Jesus, she starts naming something. Well, you guys say that Jerusalem should be the place where you, 
you worship. Well, I say on this hill up over here, that comes back from this very time. Okay? It's all starting to make sense now, right? All right. I wouldn't, I'd like to end today. What time is it? Oh, we're doing good. All right. Can you tell I'm a little excited? I, I, this, is, this is great stuff. As a historian, as a, um, a reader of archaeological things, of, of extra biblical, biblical stuff, this is, this is good stuff. I mean, there are some things you can't really say, well, we have archaeological evidence of, you know, creation, right? Genesis, whatever. This is too far deep. But we get here, we start finding physical evidence of stuff that God really did. And, and there's, there's amazing stuff going on. And the Bible says it. And you go, oh, okay, great. And if you can believe that, you can believe the other stuff. Okay, so let me, let me give you three verses, one from each of our books that I think are key verses and that I think you will love. All right, you ready? Just, I usually, I usually read a whole chapter. This time I'm doing three verses, or four, well, actually five verses. So let's do this. Okay, here's one, Ezra. I'll do it in, in, um, in order, chronological order, not in biblical order. <laughs> All right, so Ezra, six, seven, eight, six. Chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And this is, um, this is the king, Persian king. This is part of your little documents here. Do not interfere with the work of this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree with what you are to do to these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury and from the revenues trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Now, why is that important? Okay, because there's a governor named Tadani. And he sees the Jews starting to build the temple. He goes, hmm, I'm going to send a letter to the king. He's going to rat him out. Those Jews, they're building a temple. (laughs) And, you know, these guys have been very, very rebellious. We'll get this stopped right now. So he sends this letter off, and then king says, what? Okay, maybe we should worry about this. And then he checks the annals, he checks the records, and he goes, oh, they should do that. They can do that. Cyrus did this edict. That's fine. This happened, edict was 30 years ago, but hey, now we know. We checked the records. And so Tadani, governor, by the way, don't interfere with them. And even more so, you got to pay for it. <laughs> I love it. Is that not a God thing? Woo! Key verse. All right. Esther. This is, this is Esther now. Esther 414. Or Esther 414. Here we go. This is Mordecai talking to Esther. She's already been queen. He says this. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Oh, I just get chills. Mordecai's like, you know what? God's going to act, and he's going to work, and he's going to do great wings. Whether you want to be a part of it or not, that's up to you. But who knows? Maybe you're queen for this very reason. I love this verse. Because, you know, I go through some some times in my life, and I... I run into things, and I think, why am I here? Why am I doing this? 
And I get to this verse and I go, I may be here for the very reason to give God glory and to, to maybe change the path of another person so that their destiny is eternal life with Jesus. I don't think that's a stretch. I don't think that's I said Jesus. I think that's exit Jesus. I really do. And then the last one. Nehemiah 8, 9, 10. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teachers of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Go, enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I used to hate this verse. What is the joy of the Lord is my strength? I don't feel very strong because the joy of the Lord. God, I don't understand this verse. You know, this little kid is singing, the joy of the Lord is my strength. That's not. Maybe I should cut back on coffee. Anyway, uh, but do, do you see this one? People read the law. I mean, sometimes you read the law and like kings, like Josiah, he reads this and goes, ah, we're not doing it. He rips his clothes, right? But then the people are reading the law and they're going, huh, we're pathetic. We haven't done any of these things. This is terrible. And Nehemiah tells them, no, 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 no. Don't beat yourself up. Don't you understand? God has brought you back here. The temple is being rebuilt. The walls are getting done. And the joy of the Lord is coming back. And that's our strength. He's giving us a do-over for crying out loud. Listen, oftentimes this is known as like the second exodus. Because, okay, let's go back to the first exodus. The Jews were um, enslaved in Egypt. And then God drew them out divinely. Took them, tried to take them to the promised land. They kind of messed up out along the way. And then they finally came back in. And then God reveals the law to them and tells them how to worship. And then they go and they settle into the land. And there's enemies around them and they have to work their way back in. And then they establish towns. Wait, doesn't that sound like Ezra, Nehemiah, and and Esther? Boom, it's the second exodus. It's a do-over. Now let me finish by saying this. God is the God of the second chance. And the third chance. And the fourth chance. And the do-over international. Oh my gosh. Because... We screw up. We do. We do stupid things and we go, how did I get here? There's a reason why Jesus is called the Redeemer. Because he redeems us from our fallen nature. He saves us. He returns us back to the relationship that we were initially meant to be between God and himself, his creation. And because of Jesus, ultimately, we're going to have that redemption. There's still still hit and miss. 
How many of you have stopped sinning? Yeah. Me neither. But we're working on it. And we're, as, you know, as Chris said, we're trying to be more like Jesus. Why? Because God's living in us and we are becoming more and more like him because of our relationship with him. This, this, this is going to be an awesome six weeks. You're going to go, oh, God, you're so good. One of the things, one of the complaints about Esther is that there's no mention of God. But when you read Esther, it's everything about God that he works. Maybe he's working in the background, but he's working. There's no other way to explain it. Have have I encouraged you? you Are you excited about reading this? Are you going to burn it up and read it all in one day? I love this stuff. All right. What time is it? Dude, it's 11.58. It's got to be God. It's divine. It's getting done the right in time. Why don't you stand? People in on Facebook, I hope you enjoyed this. hope it's not too crazy for you. I tried to stay in one place. <sighs> let's go to the Lord in prayer. And let's have an amazing week as we dive into lists and legal speak and letters. Of Ezra. Father God, we come before you. We thank you and praise you. Jesus, where would we be without you? Oh, thank you so much for your redemptive qualities. Thank you for your word that points us to a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you do. We're just grateful and we wish to pursue you by knowing your word but having a relationship with you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.